Hello and welcome to Don't Touch Your Face, Foreign Policy's podcast on the coronavirus pandemic. I'm Amy McKinnon. On today's episode, we're going to look at the price we pay, the devastating economic impact of the pandemic. Over the past three weeks, almost 17 million Americans have filed for unemployment benefits, but experts say that number is only set to climb over the coming weeks. Many people have struggled to file their claims as the system is simply overwhelmed. Later on, we'll hear from a bartender in Philadelphia who was laid off in mid-March after the city shut down. And I'll also be speaking with Dr. Betsy Stevenson, who is chief economist at the Department of Labor and a member of Barack Obama's White House Council of Economic Advisors. But first this. So if you like our show, there's another new podcast I'm listening to that has unique perspectives on how the coronavirus is impacting all of us from the science of sneezing to the psychology of hoarding. It's called Epidemic. In each episode, Dr. Celine Gounder, an infectious disease specialist, and Ron Klein, the former US Ebola czar, talk to the world's leading experts about how COVID-19 is changing our world. New episodes of Epidemic are out every Tuesday and Friday. You can listen to Epidemic wherever you get your podcasts. I hope you'll give it a try. So for those of you new to the show, hello and welcome and thanks for joining. And for those who've been with us from the start, you'll know that I'm usually joined by my co-host, James Palmer. Now, James has been off sick for the past couple of weeks with what we now suspect is a mild case of the coronavirus. And I hesitate to say mild because, as you'll hear in a second, it still sounds really unpleasant. He is on the upswing, though, so I gave him a call to see how he's doing. Hey, Amy. James, so good to hear your voice. How are you? Uh-huh. Um, I'm exhausted, but I think I'm recovering. Like, I actually feel that I can do things at the moment, but I'm trying not to push myself because what happens is I do something and then I get really tired. Yeah. I need to go, I need to go back to bed. Basically, it was, you know, there was like a week of just being completely exhausted. I mean, barely, like, even just getting up would leave me shaking but I was lucky in that it wasn't as uncomfortable as it's been for some people like I had shakes and sweats but I didn't have like the high fever right so I didn't have that that kind of overwhelming feeling I just um was really like physically shaky and even just going to like sit at the desk would cause me to intensely sweat oh wow um I had you know, bad coughing, but not like the overwhelming kind of cough out your lung stuff that mm-hmm. some people had. And no, and no nausea, which was a big relief because I freaking hate nausea. But yeah, it was, but mostly it's just been being like, just physically exhausted. I mean, like that sort of, when you've been up for 36 hours kind of feeling. Yes, yeah. Um, And just kind of collapsing. There were days when I think I slept for like, 16 or 17 hours the scary stuff was the breathing yeah um because i had a couple of days when my breathing was really tight like mm-hmm. um and but getting a pulse oxidizer which is a little device that you clip onto the end of your finger oximeter uh, oximeter yeah mm-hmm. pulse oximeter helped enormously because basically it gave a sort of 
physical measurement to how I was feeling. Right. And it gave me a kind of number like, if it's below this, then I need to go to hospital kind right. of uh, level. So, and I think especially because, you know, panic and anxiety also makes you feel short of breath. Yeah. Um, so having that was really useful. Yeah. I've been trying to get um, them for my mom and for my stepmom because they both work in healthcare. Um, although they're, I mean, they're on the list of things that are just very hard to find anywhere or orders are way backed up. Where were you able to get one? So actually, friends found us two hmm. um, just by going um, uh-huh. to local pharmacies. Um, so they are out there. Yeah. So w- when did you realize that you had the virus and that this wasn't just a bug or exhaustion? So my wife had what we know pretty certain was a mild presentation of the virus in that she started coughing for a day and then she was completely exhausted for two days and then she was recovered although she was you know she still had patches of tiredness but we very much thought that was a cold or something so i developed a kind of tickle in my throat and i then started coughing heavily two weeks ago like having a day of like really aggressive coughing and then the day after that i got completely exhausted and it took sort of two or three days before I was certain that this was the virus because I didn't have the characteristic high fever. But yeah. then quite a lot of people don't. That's mm-hmm. one of the reasons why relying on temperature alone isn't like a reliable metric. And there was a chain of transmission through, like my wife had been in contact with people who had the virus. Right. So we knew that there was a chain of transmission there. And basically the doctor, I, when I did the TURDOC visits, they were like, you know, stay at home unless your symptoms are serious enough that you need to go into hospital. And if in that case, they'll test you in hospital. Right. Um, so I now know of places where you can get tested in D.C., mm-hmm. um, but they would require a trip, which I'm not quite up to yet, of like going downstairs is exhausting. Yeah. And presumably um, if you guys got in a you know, you don't have a car, so if you got in a taxi or an Uber or if a friend took you over, you're then widening yeah, the circle so of people you, then at it, risk. It, exposing other people to risk, exactly, yeah. exactly. So all these kind of considerations. Yeah. Um, I mean, it makes so, you wonder how many people there are who have done exactly what you've done and probably oh, had it but just not got tested. Exactly. I mean, this is the prevailing medical advice has been to stay at home and not go out. So, you know, and, and that's both good and bad because the bad side is obviously the prevalence is bigger than we think. The good side is that it means the fatality rate is probably a little bit lower. Right, um, as because, a percentage. you know, the less serious cases don't show up on, are less likely to show up in the numbers. Yeah. Can I ask, I mean, you have followed the virus for months, you know, way before most of us. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we all know the worst case scenario of what it could do. What was it like when you finally realized oh, God, I have it. Um, so weirdly, I, I guess, I think people around me were more worried than I was because mm. I'm quite statistically minded. Right. And so I was kind of like, well, there's a 4%, in my age range, there's a 4% chance of hospitalization. And I was really scared of hospitalization. I was really scared of being intubated mm-hmm. because that sounds terrifying. But I was like, okay, you know, I need to keep an eye on this, but I can also remind myself that most cases for people like me are are mild. So I I guess almost having that understanding helped, but then I found the scariest moment was waking up and feeling that I was struggling to breathe. Um, It was 
really terrifying. And the thing that surprised me was just how long it is. Because I think there, there's some level when it's not like the flu, but there's some level at which we're conditioned to think of like, okay, you're knocked out and in bed. This is going to be about a week. Mm. I mean, it's two weeks now and I'm, and I, I've just the last couple of days started to feel like I'm on the mend. And, you know, I mean, obviously Christina did everything. I mean, I owe her, you know, a month's worth of chores. Shall I pass you to Christina for a second that she can talk about what it was like to look after somebody who's sick? Sure. I was, I was going to say, are you okay? You sound like you're getting a bit short of breath. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm just tired. I'm not short of breath. I'm just kind of like, um, you're, it's like one of the, so one of the things is like really deep yawns, like just like, mm. which I guess is kind of an oxygen thing as well, like just this kind of almost cartoonish yawn. Mm. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pass you over to Christina for a few minutes. Okay. Okay. Okay, you take care. Amy? Hi. Hey, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Well, we're both pretty exhausted physically, psychologically. But the last couple days, he's been feeling better, both in terms of his energy level and, crucially, his breathing. So I don't think I'll feel completely comfortable until he's maybe four weeks past the onset of symptoms because there are some people who've had relapses after feeling that they've been getting better. Um, But we're we're cautiously optimistic now that he will have what he describes, you know, in clinical terms, a mild case. Although, you know, being in bed for two to three weeks does not have a mild impact on someone's life. For sure, yeah. Well, I'm so glad that he's hopefully on the upswing and fingers crossed that that continues. Yeah. So I did want to say something, um, just eavesdropping, as I often do on his podcast (laughs) recordings. Uh, So he was saying that he took some comfort in the fact that he knew, you know, for someone his age, he's 41, that 4% of people require hospitalization. (sighs) For me, as a caregiver, and obviously as a different person, I actually found the range of possible outcomes to be one of the most difficult things because when his breathing starting to get worse, that was uncomfortable now. But what was terrifying was to think, is this the beginning of much greater constraints on his breathing? Is this the beginning of having to get ready to pack go bags and go to the ER? Is this the beginning? You know, I don't, and then trying to contain those thoughts um I found that quite difficult and then you know you hear from friends who've recovered and you read online just the intense variability of how this disease impacts people Mm. um but you know I think we remain cautious optimistic but still cautious well thank you for taking such good care of James for us Course. We can't wait to have him back, but only when he's good and I'm ready. Sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. The last message is don't overtax him well. For sure. He's definitely still mostly in bed. Yeah. But, yeah. but a little bit better. Okay. I'm so glad to hear that. We all are. That was my co host, James Palmer, and his wife, Christina Larson. So there are two halves to the story of this pandemic. The first, is the death toll, which last week surpassed 100,000 worldwide. And then there's the economic cost, as countries have shut down their economies almost overnight, 
throwing millions out of work. Here in the United States, Congress passed a $2 trillion stimulus package to provide some relief to workers and businesses that have been devastated by the pandemic. But will it be enough? Earlier, I spoke to Shannon Darcy, who, until the shutdown, was a bartender and server at an upscale Mexican restaurant in Philadelphia. Like a lot of workers who are reliant on tips to make up the bulk of their income, Shannon said that her unemployment insurance is significantly less than what she was previously earning. Here's our conversation over Skype. We were sent a formal layoff letter on mm-hmm. March 16th once the state of Pennsylvania and the city of Philadelphia had ordered um, non-essential businesses to close. Um, so that's when I started my unemployment journey. When you say journey, how has it been so far? Um, I would describe it as interesting to say the least interesting in what way um I also had to cancel slash postpone my wedding on the 16th because I was yeah so um this has definitely been a whirlwind of events for me personally and professionally um so going from working full-time to a job that I thoroughly enjoy you know I work there full-time five sometimes six days a week Mm -hmm. Um, with with really great managers and owners and to go from having something like that to just you know kind of feeling like the rug was pulled out from under you is uh, definitely how I would describe the feeling in general Um, unfortunately the way that Pennsylvania's unemployment works is everything is still done by mail for the most part so we filed on the 16th but given this situation things have definitely been delayed up to three weeks Okay, so you have you been able to get some monies? Yes, I actually received a deposit from them yesterday um, mm-hmm. into my bank account. Um, mm-hmm. So for me personally, since I am a tipped employee, I didn't qualify for the maximum amount of benefits. So I'm only um, qualifying for $295 per week. So that you're you're expected to live off $295 a week. Yes, I'm expected to live off of $295 per week. And I just think that that's um, very unrealistic considering the amount of money that I was previously making while I was working full time. Yeah. Um, I've also had to file for food stamps, which has mm-hmm. offset things a little bit for me. I qualified for about $200 a month for food stamps, um, which has been really helpful. I mean, how do you feel about the decision to shut down the economy in this way, to close restaurants and cost so many people their jobs like this? I think that it was the right decision as far as I'm concerned. Um, I had spent seven days in a row at work leading up to March 14th. um, And I started to really think like, how many people have I been in contact with in the last 10 days? How many people have I been exposed to working in a restaurant and to just have everyone out there and gathering in large groups? I mean, it's a restaurant and people sit next to each other. You know, the, I just, things really started to run through my mind that I've never thought about before. And I think that it was the right decision to close um, just out of safety for not only us as employees, but for our guests as well. Yeah. Well, how do you feel about the way the closures and the huge unemployment numbers that we've seen have been handled by 
both state and federal governments? I just feel like things sh- maybe should have been handed, handled a little bit differently. Um, I'm sure that they knew that this was coming. It was almost inevitable leading up to the to March 16th that businesses were going to have to close. There is one phone number to call. Yesterday, for example, I called over 111 times to f- try and find out why I was only deposited $266 instead of $295, and I was never able to get through to anybody. So the $295 a week that you're getting now, how does that compare to what you were earning before? I would say that it I, there really is no comparison. The total that I'm getting from unemployment you know, per month is hardly enough for me to pay my rent. And, you know, thankfully I do live with my fiance and he is still working at an essential job. Mm -hmm. So we are fortunate enough that he still has an income. And then, you know, all the money that we were saving for our wedding, things like that have now become things that we need for essential living. When were you supposed to get married? We were scheduled to get married May 18th. Our wedding was also in Costa Rica, so that made things even more tricky. (laughs) Oh. So how much of your previous income was based on tips, roughly? A hundred percent. (laughs) Okay. How does having been a tipped employee affect the amount of unemployment that you're able to claim? It's based off of your highest earning quarter. So mm-hmm. I believe since we do not earn an hourly wage, um, it's based off of how you're paid. So at a previous job, I was paid um, on a paycheck for credit card tips. And that's how I received my credit card tips. Mm-hmm. But if you receive cash, it's up to you to claim the cash. I was also at a job where they did not claim the cash for us and things were rang under a generic number, Mm -hmm. um, which is how I'm in the situation of not qualifying for the maximum amount of money. That was Shannon Darcy speaking over Skype. Last month, President Trump said that the cure for the coronavirus, i.e. shuttering businesses like the one where Shannon worked, cannot be allowed to be worse than the impact of the disease itself. Now, to help me understand this and whether this is actually the case, I spoke to Dr. Betsy Stevenson, who is an advisor to Barack Obama on social policy and the labor market. Now, she walked me through the maths associated with this question and was pretty unequivocal. However hard the economy has been hit, the cure is not worse than the disease. Here's our conversation. What do you make of the unemployment figures that were released on Thursday? I mean, there's now almost 17 million people have filed for unemployment over the past 17 weeks. How accurate are those numbers as a reflection of job losses in the country? Well, first of all, I think that those numbers reflect that the system is actually really working. So the idea is that if you are not being paid by your employer... We have a system in place where we can make up at least some of the wages that you've lost so that you can pay the bills you need to pay. In normal times, there's a trade-off between giving people incentives to get back to work and helping people make up their lost income. And as a result, we usually only replace a little bit less than half of, of the typical person's wages through unemployment insurance. Um, but... What Congress did with its recent stimulus package, the CARES Act, 
was to increase the amount of money people were getting on unemployment insurance claims so that a lot of people, particularly middle income and lower income workers, are getting as much as they were getting in wages, they're getting an unemployment insurance. So um, let's, let's start with that positive, that it's the system working. I think that the other way to to think about those numbers is to ask, well, how many of those people um, will likely be recalled back to their old job? How many of them have jobs that are waiting for them? And how many Mm -hmm. have jobs that are disappearing? And the truth is nobody knows the answer to that right now. Um, A lot, even, I think the employers don't know the answer. I think employers want to be able to bring people back. But if demand doesn't pick up, they may end up bringing only half their workers back. Or if their business goes belly up, they may bring none of their Mm -hmm. workers back. Now, there's one more thing, one more factor to put in this mix which is that not everyone's eligible for unemployment insurance and not everyone's been able to get through to file. So this is not reflective of all the people Mm -hmm. who have lost income as a result and not even reflective of all the people whose wages have gone to zero as a result of the efforts to contain the pandemic. So one thing which the administration and the president seems to have grappled with is this idea of whether the cure, um, i.e. shutting down the economy, encouraging social distancing, is worse than the disease itself. What do you say to people who raise that question? So I think that it's a reasonable question to ask. Um, And people have said things like, well... We don't shut down the economy for a flu that's going to cause 60,000 deaths in a year. And now we're looking at COVID and it's going to cause 60 or 70,000 deaths this year. So why did we shut the economy down? Well, the problem is there's a mistake in the thinking. It is only going to cause only 60 or 70,000 deaths because we shut the economy down. If we hadn't shut the economy down, The models suggest that without taking these measures, we might have seen um, 600,000 people die. Um, This sounds really, really barbaric, but if 600,000 people died, the way the government usually thinks about the value of a statistical life, if we were designing a policy like whether to require a seatbelt warning system in cars... We would say, well, what are the costs of doing that? What are Mm -hmm. the benefits? The benefits are we might save a certain number of lives. How much are those lives worth? And we normally say they're worth about $9 million, that a person's life from a government policy perspective is uh, if I can save someone's life by doing uh, some form of economic policy that's going to cost $9 million, it's worth doing. Now, if we're talking about saving 600,000 lives, um, and uh, then that's 600,000 people times 9 million, and that's $5.4 trillion. When we put that in the context of our overall economy, what, mm-hmm. we, uh, you know, what we see is that just in terms of the, what we should be willing to give up 
um, in order to save people's lives um, is a really large portion of GDP. We should be willing to give up something that is on the order of 25 to 30% of GDP in order to save those lives. So the math tells us that the cure is not worse than the disease. So there are still a handful of states, albeit more rural ones, that haven't issued stay-at-home orders. And other states have been a little bit slow off the blocks with implementing these orders. Do you think that this patchwork response that we've seen across the the country is going to hinder the economic recovery for the country at large? Um, I do think it it has the potential. You know, somebody said uh, the problem with having states that aren't engaging in the same kind of um, the same kind of protectionist policies. It's a little bit like having a peeing section in a swimming pool. <laughs> um, it's uh, not easy to contain them, um, and that's because we're not erecting border. Uh, across state lines and saying you can't cross. And what we've learned from all the states so far is that waiting until you actually have a lot of cases in your state is not a good idea, right? That's what happened in Michigan. You know, the everybody kept saying in Michigan, well, we don't have any confirmed cases. We didn't have a lot of testing. It turned out we probably did have a lot of cases before we actually had a confirmed case. And as a result, today... You know, Michigan is one of, Detroit in particular, is one of the hot spots. We're still not doing widespread testing enough for any state to say, hey, we don't have any cases. We don't need to worry yet. So it's becoming clear that both the death toll of the pandemic as well as the economic toll is falling disproportionately on African-Americans, Latinos, and low-income families. What needs to be done to make sure that the crisis doesn't make inequality in the country even worse? So because the unemployment insurance system is just beginning to get checks out the door, um, I think we're really seeing some of this inequality at its hardest. But there was a real effort to address inequality in the CARES Act that passed. So... If you receive unemployment insurance, if you have been laid off and you are a minimum wage worker, your unemployment insurance check will be much larger than your work check. So you'll be making more from being laid off. The reason that was done was because it's very hard to go in and reprogram the unemployment insurance system so everybody's getting exactly what they earned before. So what they wanted to do was make it so that uh, the median wage worker was able to basically bring home what they were bringing home before. And that means anybody earning below medium wage is actually bringing in more if they can get eligible for UI. So some of that is addressing some of the inequality. It's giving money to people at the bottom Um, more money to people at the bottom than people at the top, for sure, and disproportionately more at at the lower end. Now, there's still challenges with a couple of different aspects. One is there's a lot of people in underprivileged communities that are actually still out there working. Um, They're doing the essential work. They're out there being uh, Instacart shoppers for people. They're working in the grocery stores. Um, They 
are putting themselves at risk. And there's a lot of discussion about the need for hazard pay for these workers. And I Mm -hmm. think that that's right. And I think that would also address some of the inequality. Are there any bright spots that we can look to when it comes to the economy, you know, to help us sleep at night a little bit? Well, the thing that I um, keep hoping for is that we will develop testing that will become easy and prevalent and anybody who wants to get tested will be able to. Once that happens, there'll be so much more we can go back to doing. So I keep mm-hmm. looking for evidence on testing as the bright spot. I I think the other bright spot is we see so many companies and businesses that are trying to figure out how to reinvent themselves that you see ingenuity on display every day if you look for it. And it's that human ingenuity that's going to get us out of this, uh, both human ingenuity in terms of finding new ways to keep us safe, so the science of it all uh, to solve the problem, but also businesses that figure out how to stay in business, how to adapt, how to employ more people. You know, I I just was talking to my children's principal and uh, their school director on a Zoom coffee chat with uh, parents, and I said, I'm really worried about what my kids my ability to really teach my kids during this period. They, are they learning enough mm-hmm. you know, of the stuff they're supposed to get from school? And the thing that the, the lower school director said that was so wise was, well, you know, they're learning about adaptability and advocating for themselves and organizing in chaos and new technology skills every day. These kids can work Zoom and Google Hangouts and Google Classrooms, and they can toggle between them all. And we're going to see kids with an enormous set of skills come September that they didn't have when we stopped school in early March. It might not be what we were expecting they would have in September of 2020 when we started September of 2019, but they're growing every day. And that's the bright spot I look at. And thank you for that. I think I needed that after seeing the uh, jobless reports today. Glad that I was able to give you a bright spot to to end on. To be honest, I actually just cheered myself up too. (laughs) That was Dr. Betsy Stevenson, who is now a professor of public policy and economics at the University of Michigan. Don't forget that we want to hear from you. Send in your questions, comments, and concerns to don'ttouchyourface at farmpolicy.com. That's it for this week. I'll be back next Monday. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And in the meantime, head over to farmpolicy.com for analysis from the world's leading experts on the impact of the pandemic and what could come next. I'm Amy McKinnon. Our show is produced by Darcy Palder and is edited by Rob Sachs. Our web team includes Laurie Kelly and Kelly Kimball. The executive producer for news and podcasts of Foreign Policy is Dan Efron. Until next time, please remember to wash your hands and don't touch your face.